and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield, and I'm recording this here in Chicago on Friday, December 15th, 2023. In the whole Bible, there's no book that gives us such a complete picture of God's redemptive work as we see in the book of Exodus. And to understand that, you have to consider what you see at the beginning of the book of Exodus and what you see at the end of the book of Exodus. At the beginning of Exodus, God's people are enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh and are building up his treasure cities. And at the end of the book of Exodus, what you have is God's people have been freed from bondage to Pharaoh. They're in the wilderness and they have built up the tabernacle as God's dwelling place. They have the priesthood. They are offering to God. And eventually God's glory fills the tabernacle. That's the full result of God's redemptive work in the history of the children of Israel. And, of course, it's a picture of his redemptive work in the church age. Today, God's people, so many of God's people, are enslaved in Satan's world system under Satan's authority, who is the real Pharaoh. But then they hear the gospel, and they're saved, and they begin a journey out of Satan's authority to be built up together with their fellow believers in Christ as the church, as God's dwelling place on the earth today, so that his glory can fill the church. That is the full scope of God's redemptive work. Now, we can talk about the redemptive work of Christ and refer specifically to what he accomplished on the cross, which is fine. For sure, we can speak of the redemptive work of Christ in that way. But the full scope of God's redemptive work in terms of how that's worked out in our lives and how that's applied to us, that applies all the way from the time we're in bondage under Satan's world system until we are fully built up to be God's dwelling place on the earth. And that's what you see pictured there in the book of Exodus. So what I want to do in the program today is to come to the book of Exodus and just to provide a general sketch of this book. Now, I could say we're coming back to the book of Exodus. And the, the reason for that is I started to cover this topic way back in August because I just had a feeling so many believers in Christ today simply don't have an understanding, an adequate understanding at least, of how redemption really works. Well, to understand redemption, you need to come to the Passover as the type of redemption. And to understand the Passover, you have to see that in the context of the whole book of Exodus. So I started to cover this topic back in August, but then I had some feeling to get into this matter of the reward and discipline of the believers. I had no idea at that time that was going to take the whole fall up until now. So I feel since it's been such a long time, we better go back and just do a brief review of some of the things we've already covered I'll link to those previous programs in the program notes below. But today what we'll do is just to try to provide a general sketch of the book of Exodus to prepare the way for getting into the Passover. And if time allows, we'll see, uh, maybe get into, start to get into the Passover itself. Now to understand the picture of our history that we see in the book of Exodus, we need to come back to the New Testament to look at how the apostle explains this picture. And that's in a couple of places. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 through 27, the apostle Paul says he's running a race. He says he's buffeting his body. He makes it a slave because he wants to win the race to gain the crown. 
He says he's running for an incorruptible crown, and he's concerned that he might be disqualified if he doesn't win the race. Not from salvation. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about whether or not he is going to win the crown. In the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, he illustrates what he is talking about by giving us the example of the children of Israel and how they left the land of Egypt and entered into the wilderness on their way to the good land. So here's what he says in these verses, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of a spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things happened as a pattern for us that we should not be those who crave for evil things even as they also crave for them. And he goes on from there. So Paul here says specifically that the history of the children of Israel in leaving Egypt is a picture of our history as the believers in Christ. And the way he is applying this is to say it shows that we have a race to run as the believers. In other words, according to the picture in the book of Exodus, there's a race to run from the land of Egypt being in slavery in Egypt into the good land to build up God's dwelling place. And to put that in New Testament terms, we have a race to run from being under the bondage of Satan as the God of this age to leave the world behind in a moral sense so that we can be built up as God's dwelling place today. That's our race to run as the believers in Christ. And this is how we need to view the book of Exodus in the light of what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, chapter 10. We should have a real sense, saints, we have a race to run as the believers in Christ. I'm not saved just so I can have my sins forgiven and wait to go to heaven and gaze up into heaven like the angels told the uh, apostles, the early believers in, first, in Acts chapter 1. Why do you stand gazing into heaven? That's not our life as believers in Christ. Our life is to run a race for God's building so he can have his dwelling place on the earth. We'll talk about this more uh, when we get into the Passover. But the Lord told Moses, he says, when you eat the Passover, you need to have a staff on your hand and sandals on your feet. Saints, when we believe in Christ as our real Passover, we should have a sense we are beginning a journey with Christ. We're leaving the world behind. Now we're following Christ so he can have his kingdom on the earth, so he can build up the church as his dwelling place. We really need to have this kind of a sense. Then we have an adequate beginning to our Christian life. So when we come to the book of Exodus, in this light, what we see is God's people there are enslaved in bondage to Pharaoh, and they're building up his treasure cities. And so long as that's the case, God can never have his dwelling place. God could never build up his tabernacle in the land of Egypt. He had to get his people out of the land of Egypt in order to do that. And what did he do? Well, the first thing he did was to prepare Moses as his servant. He called Moses, prepared Moses to serve him, then arranged up circumstances in the land of Egypt that forced Moses to flee Egypt. And so Moses was the first one to get out of Egypt. And he was in the wilderness there for 40 years, being purged and cleansed of all the worldly things, all the Egyptian things that had been in his being, until God came and called him from the burning bush 
and said, now I want you to go back to the land of Egypt and lead my people out. And this is a real lesson for any of us who desire to serve the Lord. If we want to call God's people out of the land of Egypt, if we want to bring God's people from out of the bondage to Satan, we have to be delivered from that kind of bondage ourselves. Only then can God use us in a genuine way to call others out of that tyranny and to be built up as God's dwelling place. Very, very significant lesson. And, and of course, the whole story, like we're just doing a general sketch today, but the whole story of how God called Moses is very, very striking and very, very significant. But that's the first thing God did. He prepared his servant, and then he sent him back to Egypt to call his children out of the land of Egypt. And then the second thing that God did to get his people out of the land of Egypt was to send the plagues. And this is a very, very meaningful type in terms of our Christian experience. Very often, in order to rescue us from Satan's bondage, God has to send the plagues to help us see what the world really is. You know, Egypt had a very fair appearance. It was a place of luxury. It was a place of so many pleasures and indulgences. It seemed so wonderful outwardly. And as long as the children of Israel had such a view of the land of Egypt, they weren't going to leave. They would be happy. They would be satisfied there. So in order to deal with that, God sent the plagues to help the children of Israel realize what the land of Egypt really was. Not just its appearance, but what it really is. So he turns the Nile, this, this, the source of life in Egypt, which the water that provided the fish and, and irrigated their crops, he turns that from water into blood. He brings frogs out of the river. It should be producing fish for them to eat. Instead, he brings out these disgusting frogs. He turns the dust into lice. All these really troublesome things. And that's just the beginning. These, are the, these, these plagues are in a few different stages. But he brings forth these plagues to help people, the people, the children of Israel, to understand what is the real nature of the land of Egypt. Well, in our experience... Very often, God allows situations to arise to help us see through the world's false appearance. As long as we think the world is such a wonderful place, it's so full of pleasure, it's so full of enjoyment, it's so full of amusements and luxuries and pastimes, as long as we think that that's the real nature of the world, we're not going to be willing to be those who come out from under the slavery that we are in in that world system that Satan has arranged. It's when some things happen sometimes that we finally see, I cannot stay here. I can't love the world any longer. I have to flee the world. I have to be one who's left the world behind so I can stand with the Lord and stand for his purpose. Then we can be useful for God's building. We can be those who are really living under the authority of Christ living in the reality of his kingdom. As long as we're still in part of the world system, we're, we're not useful to God. It damages us in relation to God's purpose. The whole element of the world has to be purged out of our being, has to be dealt with. Then we become someone the Lord can really use for his desire. You know, it's one thing to be saved in the sense of having our sins forgiven. But many Christians, it seems, never really begin this journey They've really been saved. They've really had their sins forgiven. They've experienced Christ as their Passover. 
But unlike the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they never really begin this journey of forsaking the world to follow Christ. That's a very different matter than simply having our sins forgiven. When Moses first went to Pharaoh, he said uh, God's people needed to take a three days journey to sacrifice to him into the wilderness. You know what you need? Saints, you need a three days journey. Well, what journey is that? That's the journey of death and resurrection. That's the journey of Christ on the cross from the time he was crucified until the time he was raised again. We all have to take that three days journey of dying to self, dying to the world, and rising up in newness of life. That's the three days journey. But so many Christians have never taken that step and to begin to leave the world by taking that three days journey. It's not easy. It's a real struggle uh, to, to cause people to come out from under bondage to Satan. It's, yeah, as I say, it's one thing, preach the gospel so their sins can be forgiven, yes. But the God of this age will fight very, very hard to keep God's children from ever leaving the land of Egypt. And in this sense, when we preach the gospel, we're not dealing so much with the sinners. We're dealing with Satan directly, the God of this age. As those who serve the Lord, we have to find out how, how can we deal with Satan. You know, when God commissioned, when the Lord commissioned the Apostle Paul, Acts twenty six eighteen, very striking verse, because he talks about, in that commission, he talks about the stages people have to go through in order to really experience the full scope of God's salvation. He commissioned him, he says, to open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light, from the authority of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's really the journey of the children of Israel in a nutshell. The first thing was to open their eyes. They had to see, wait a minute, I've been in uh, darkness. That's the next thing, to turn them from darkness to light. Once their eyes are open, they can begin to see that. And then they realize, next thing is, not, they're not just in darkness, they've been living under the authority of Satan. They need to have a turn from the authority of Satan to God. These three things on the negative side. You know, we try to get people saved. We try to get them to turn to the Lord, but their eyes are never really open to see their real situation. To deal with Satan, we have to be very much an exercise before the Lord so that people's eyes can be open. They'd have a real turn, a dynamic turn to the Lord. Because their eyes are open, they realize they've been in darkness and they realize they've been serving Satan. They have a real turn to God, forsaking the things, leaving the world behind. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells the believers, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's a dynamic salvation that we should be uh, preaching today for people to have such a turn. Then they receive the forgiveness of sins and finally, ultimately, the inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ. You could say that's the reality of what the children of Israel experienced when they entered into the good land to receive their inheritance there. So it covers the full scope of the redemption of the salvation that you see in the history of the children of Israel. And it's not a small thing, not a small thing for a person to experience that. It's a great struggle and we have to deal with God's enemy, Satan, in order to help people have that kind of deliverance, that kind of salvation. In Matthew 12, verse 29, Jesus says this about dealing with Satan. He says, How can anyone enter into the strong man's house and snatch away his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? 
So in order to deliver people out from under the bondage of Satan, we need to learn how to bind the strong man, how to deal with him. And then the people can come out of his bondage. And that's really what you see in the book of Exodus. It's by the exposing of the real situation of Egypt through the plagues that God accomplished through his servant Moses. That was what enabled the children of Israel eventually to leave the land of Egypt. And as I say, that's a picture of how we today have to be exercised before the Lord to deal with Satan as God's enemy so that God's people today can come out from bondage to Satan and be brought into God's kingdom for the building up of God's dwelling place. And once we've had that deliverance, then we can begin to run the Christian race all the way into the good land, according to the picture in the Old Testament, or to say, put it in New Testament terms again, to be built up together as God's dwelling place on the earth. And that's not easy, not an easy race to run. And to go back to uh, Paul's word in 1 Corinthians, he says a very sober word about the children of Israel. He says, with most of them, God was not well pleased. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. For they were struck down in the wilderness. And there's no question, this is talking here about the children of Israel as a type of the believers in Christ. That's where Paul adds this word, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Very, very sober word. Now, I read these verses before, but he's talking, these are all the ones who came out of Egypt by Moses, who were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So no question, this is talking about real believers. Now, some people wrongly teach that you can, uh, this shows you can lose, lose your salvation. But the context here after Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 9, it's not about losing your salvation. It's about failing to gain the prize of reigning with Christ in the millennial kingdom for that thousand-year period that will follow right after this age. That's the context here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.25, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So he's talking about the prize of reigning with Christ. You can't lose your salvation, but you may very well lose that prize if you don't run the Christian race. And so many Christians fail in their running of the Christian race. Another, in the writer of Hebrews says a very similar thing when he's talking also about the history of the children of Israel. He, Hebrews chapter three seventeen, or start with verse 16. Again, talking about the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. For who, when they heard, provoked? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose dismembered carcasses fell in the wilderness? Very, very sober statement when you consider they are a picture of our history as the believers in Christ. So no, it's not easy to run this race. But we need to have a, a preaching of the gospel that strongly calls people to run this race, to realize your life now belongs to Christ. You have to follow Christ. You have to give yourself to Christ for his desire and for his purpose. That's really to run the race. You know, a lot of what I'm sharing today, and I've said this before, it comes from uh, Witness Lee's study of the book of Exodus, which is called the Life Study of Exodus. And that's a very, very detailed study of that book. It's, like, it's about 174 messages, I think. Very, very good and enlightening study. If you really want to get into the book of Exodus, I highly recommend that. It's not theological. It's all uh, his burden in putting out the life study was to show Christians how to enter into the experience of Christ. So it's not a theological study filled with a lot of very practical applications for how we can 
really run at the Christian race, as I say. And that's been a great help to me in my own appreciation of the book of Exodus. But I always appreciate the story he tells. And I've heard, I heard him tell this, or maybe, maybe I've read it a number of times, of how he got saved, the story of how he got saved. Uh, there was a woman, I think her name was Ruth Lee, I'm not quite sure, a Chinese woman evangelist. But he went to hear her one day, and he got strongly saved, strongly saved that day. And he said he came out of that meeting and he told the Lord, Lord, I don't care if anyone were to give me the whole world. I don't want that anymore. I just want to follow you. I just want to serve you. I just want my life to be for your purpose. He had that kind of an offering and a consecration right away when he got saved because he'd heard a strong gospel message. I think she may have even been sharing along these lines about Exodus and the need to come out from under Satan's bondage. But because he had such a turn to the Lord right away at the beginning of his Christian life, that was one reason why the Lord could use him in such a strong way as he did for the rest of his life. And that's the kind of turn that we as the believers in Christ should have ourselves and in our sharing of the gospel, we should encourage others to have as well. So that will do it for this segment of the program. On the other side of the break, we will continue to get into this matter of the type of redemption in the book of Exodus. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Welcome back. I want to say some more about this matter of coming out of Satan's world system because it's such a crucial crucial point for us as the believers in Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24, the Lord says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's really so. And again, to use the picture of the children of Israel in Egypt, there was no way God could have his tabernacle in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh wouldn't allow it. That was his realm. What are you doing building a tabernacle here? You can't do that. In the same way, in the world today, Satan is not going to allow God's children to build up the genuine dwelling place for God's habitation. He won't allow it. This is his world. He is the God of this age, and he is not going to allow anyone under his authority to genuinely build up God's dwelling place. Now, there can be some false religious systems. That's no problem, because that's not the real worship of God. That worship is really being given to Satan, at least to a large extent. To have the real worship of God, we have to come out of Satan's world system. So again, just a crucial, crucial matter. But if we say that, then we have to consider, well, first of all, what is the world? And secondly, what does it mean to come out of the world system? 
Well, if you look at that section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus warns us against trying to serve two masters, you can see he gives a very practical word that relates to this matter of not loving the world, beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So here he's saying, we can really only focus on one thing. Either we're going to be focused on building up some kind of treasures for ourselves here on the earth, or we are going to focus on having treasures with the Lord in heaven. We can't do both. Right after that statement, then in verse 24, that's when he says you can't serve two masters. You cannot focus on two things. You cannot serve two masters. So our focus needs to be on serving the Lord and on following him. Then after talking about not having two masters, he, he goes on. He says, don't be anxious for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor what your body, what you shall put on. It's not the life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap or gather into storehouses. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And he goes on and says a few more things about anxiety and how the Lord cares for us. And really, very often, what causes us to love the world and to remain within Satan's world system is our anxiety. So on a deeper level here, this is what the Lord is really dealing with. He's dealing with this anxiety and this care within us, this concern about whether or not we will be provided for if we follow the Lord. And he's saying, yes, the Father knows that you need these things and he will take care of you if you follow him. So you don't have to give yourself to be completely focused on gaining the treasures of this world. Now, this does not mean we shouldn't have a job and we shouldn't care for our practical needs. That's not what he's saying here. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus tells us, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap or gather into storehouses, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Well, have you ever considered that? How does their heavenly Father feed them? He doesn't just drop the worms into the nest, right? He has given them the abilities they need to feed themselves under God's sovereign arrangement. And that's what he's saying here. Yes, you need to make a living. You need to work. So he's not saying don't do that. Don't take care of these things in a practical way. What he is saying is gaining the riches of the world should not be our focus. Now, I want to say here again, something, This is I touched on this when we were covering Exodus before in this matter of coming out of the world before, but it, it's worth repeating. What the world is to me may be very different from what the world is to you. There's no set of rules you know, anyone can give you, I can't give you, it says don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, uh, and if you don't do these things, you're not going to be a person who loves the world. If you try to do that, you just become a, a lawgiver, and you're putting believers under a kind of law, and this happens all throughout church history. The Amish have certain laws, you know, this is what you do if you, if you don't have these type of modern things, then you're not loving the world. The world actually is much deeper than that. It's really comprised of the things that are within us. And this is what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And again, you just see this, this, this theme in so many, in Matthew, in Exodus, you see it here. Either you love the world or you can love the Lord. You can't do both. James puts it this way in James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever desires to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Such a serious word, such a serious warning. If we really love the world, we make ourselves, in a sense, an enemy of God. Very sober word. But to come back to 1 John, how does John define the world? Listen to what he says in 1 John 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Then he goes on in verse 17. He gives us some encouragement. And the world is passing away and its lusts, but he who does the will of God abides forever. How much better to do the will of God and to abide forever than to live in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But when John defines the world, or at least the things that are in the world, he doesn't talk about outward material riches. Now, the Lord's word in Matthew chapter 6 is very practical. He's getting down to cases. You know, if you pursue these things, you're not going to be able to serve me. But John here gives us, he speaks in a more general way. He's saying the things in the world are the inward things that are within us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the things that are in the world. And so it's not outward things so much that we have to deal with. It's these inward things, these evil things within our being that really comprise the world system and cause us to live in such a way that we are seeking the good of the world and still living under bondage to Satan. So I can't tell you, you know, do this or don't do this and you're not going to love the world in terms of the things you can have, the things you can't have. That may be very different for you than it is for me. There's inward things, though, that we all need to deal with before the Lord in order to be those who really do not love the world. Having said that, though, in terms of helping us to not love the world, there are some very practical things we can keep in mind that I think that might be helpful, and I know in my own experience have been very helpful. You know, the Lord said, if we lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, that's where our heart's going to be. And I would expound on that a little bit to say the way to not love the world is to focus on running the Christian race. If we focus on the positive things, don't focus so much on not loving the world. That's going to be a losing game. Focus on running the Christian race. Focus on following Christ. Focus on being in his word, spending time with the Lord, spending time with the saints. Then you'll find out The world begins to fall away, just in a a very natural way. These things are being dealt with. We need to be aware of the world. We need to be very careful about being involved in the world system, for sure. And we need to be warned about that. That's why we need to share along these lines. But if we focus on dealing with the world, I don't think that's that's going to be effective. What's effective is we realize To not love the world, I have to be a person who's really a follower of Christ, really giving himself to Christ, really spending time in the Word and in prayer and allowing the Lord to deal with me. That's going to be what really saves me from loving the world. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the writer exhorts us to run the race 
by looking away unto Jesus. And it's really so. That's how we run the race. We turn away from, as he says, we lay aside every encumbrance and the, encumbrance and the sin which so easily besets us. Look away unto Jesus and run the race. That's how we really come out of the world system. And I just thought of a, a couple of examples, you know, from my own life where, where I've been helped in this regard. And I'll, I'll say this. There was a in the, the church where I used to meet, a very dear brother, I won't say his last name, but his name was Bill, and some of those who listen to that this podcast will know who that was. Very dear brother. And he helped me a good deal in this regard. He was the, the elder of the church there and uh, very successful uh, in business. He had a very successful career. And at one point, I was in this kind of a master's program. It wasn't quite a master's program. It was a, to get a certificate. Uh, for COBOL programming. This is back in uh, around 1990, many years ago. And uh, it's very, but it's very busy. It was like a seven-month program, and uh, you just took up all your time. And uh, it just, you, you had, if you were working, especially as I was then, uh, and going to school at night, and then you had to do the homework for the program and be in the classes, you just, you just didn't have an extra minute for that, that period of time. And so I was talking with Bill at one time, and I felt because I was so busy, I was just going to have to stop uh, maybe coming to the, the meetings uh, for a while. And I told him that. And he just said, no, you don't need to stop coming to the meetings. You just basically use your time more wisely. Be more careful how you use your time. And I took that from the Lord. I did. And I, I never missed another meeting, I don't think, because of that program. And actually, my grades got better. After I made that decision, it was really something. I just, it was just, to me, it was a, an example of if you give yourself really in a good way to love the Lord and follow him, he will work things out. We have to take care of our end. Again, it's not going to be just miraculous. We have, still have our work to do. If, I, if I'd stopped going to classes or if I'd stopped doing my homework, no, it wasn't going to work out that well. But if we take care of our end, the Lord will also work and undertake on our behalf to make sure that we're taken care of in a good way. And I think it was a little while after that, uh, you know, I, I got the certificate and I got a job. I was, frankly, I was never a very good programmer, but anyway, that's another story. But, um, but I did get a job and I was working as a programmer. And, uh, you know, you're trying to do good in your, in your career, which is, again, no problem with that. Just don't let it become your occupation. Don't let it become your focus. And well, so basically what happened was I, I wanted to ask Bill, you know, what, okay, how can I be at my job and do well and try to make a good income and not be distracted from loving the Lord and serving the Lord? I just appreciate his answer. It was very simple. He said, take care of the positive. And that helped me a lot. Just take care of the positive. And again, that's along the lines of what I was sharing a minute ago. If we focus on Christ, on caring for his saints, and standing with him for the building up of the church, the other things in our life will fall into place. Don't worry so much about not doing this, not doing that. We need to be careful, that's for sure. I'm not saying that. We do need to be careful. We need to guard our heart. But if our focus is really on following Christ and serving him and loving him and sharing, uh, caring for the saints, everything else eventually will fall into place. And so I really appreciated that word from Bill. Very, very practical. As I say, take care of the positive. And that's what I would pass along to you. And if you're considering how can you be a person who really loves the Lord and at the same time has to live in the world. When I say we're coming out of the world, we're not becoming hermits. 
That's not what it means to come out of the world. People have tried that. Monks, right? It doesn't really work. We have to live in the world and yet somehow not be under Satan's authority. How can we be that kind of person? Take care of the positive. Focus on Christ and focus on following Christ. And then he'll deal with the negative things in your being. He'll deal with the worldly things in your being. And you'll be a person who is very useful for the Lord's purpose. So it looks like we won't get to the Passover in this edition of the podcast. As the Lord allows, hopefully we can begin to cover that in the next edition. But there is one more point I want to cover uh, still in this episode. And that has to do with how Pharaoh bargained with Moses about the children of Israel leaving Egypt. Because this is just such a marvelous picture of how Satan tries to keep us in his world system. And people who doubt that the Bible is divinely inspired, they have no way to explain how how it can so perfectly picture our Christian experience in the New Testament with what we see in the Old Testament. And this is really just a, a marvelous example of that. So let's, now I've already done a, I should say, I already did, have done a full episode on this. Uh, so I'm just going to go through this fairly quickly. And I'll, again, I'll link to that episode in the program notes below. But it, it's worth covering again because it is such a picture of our experience. So in Exodus chapter 5, when Moses first went into talked to Pharaoh and told him, you know, let my people go. How does Pharaoh respond? In verse 2 of chapter 5, after Moses goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Again, just exactly the kind of experience we have. When we first hear the gospel, very often this is our response. Who's the Lord? I don't listen to the Lord. Why should I, why should I leave Egypt? I have no interest in that. Who is God that I should follow him in that way? Now, a couple chapters before in Exodus 3.14, the Lord had identified, he, he told Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But Pharaoh's response is just the opposite. Who is the Lord? The Lord says, I am who I am. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? So you can see how much Satan just does everything he can to directly oppose God's work. And that's what, you know, we have to say, I think many of us, that was our initial response when we heard the gospel. No, I'm not going to listen to to this kind of gospel. I'm not going to fear the Lord. And of course, many people we talk to about the gospel reply in exactly that kind of way. Again, it's so important when we preach the gospel and stand with the Lord for his purpose We're dealing with sinners, but we also have to deal with the God of this age to rescue sinners out from under the bondage of Satan. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Let more work be laid on the Israelites, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. Isn't that just what the world tells us today when we begin to consider turning to Christ and following him? These are just false words. Get busy. You don't have any business listening to that kind of talk. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's exactly how the world tries to keep us uh, under Satan's authority today in his bondage. They disregard the words of the Bible as false words. As some translations say, vain words. Then later in that chapter, after the overseers of the Israelites are beaten, they come and they appeal to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells them in verse 17, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Again, it's just exactly what the world says. When we turn to Christ, they say, you're just idle. You're just wasting your life. What are you doing? Get busy. Make a living. Try to pursue the things of the world more. You're just being idle. You're just being lazy. That's why you want to follow Christ. 
Again, just exactly pictures what so many of us have experienced as we begin to follow the Lord. So all of this takes place before God comes in to deal with Pharaoh directly. But once God came in and Moses began to do the plagues, Pharaoh changes his strategy. Now he's not opposing directly anymore the children of Israel leaving Egypt. Instead, what he's doing, he starts to bargain with the children of Israel, with Moses, to compromise with them and to get them to compromise. So in some way, he can still keep them under his authority. And this shows, again, just exactly how Satan deals with us to try to keep us in his system. He may not oppose us directly. At this point, instead, what he may do is make some offers. Well, you can follow Christ a little bit, uh, but don't be too extreme, this kind of thing. This is what we're going to see. This is Satan's bargaining with us, and we have to be very careful never to accept his compromises. That's what we see here in the book of Exodus. That's a real lesson for us to learn as the believers in Christ. Now, again, I've already covered Pharaoh's bargaining in a full episode of the program, which I'll link to below. So I'm just going to go through these stages of bargaining here very briefly. But I am going to add here some comments from others, which I think are very good, in particular from uh, Mr. Schofield in his study Bible and also from C.H. McIntosh on Pharaoh's bargaining. Very, very helpful comments. So the first stage of Pharaoh's bargaining is in Exodus chapter 8. And this is after God sent the plague of flies. Then Pharaoh calls for Moses. And in Exodus 8.25, he says, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. So many Christians today, you know what they're doing? They're sacrificing to God in the land. They've never made that clear separation from the land of Egypt that enables them to really serve the Lord in the wilderness of this world. This type of Christian, you make Christ seem like he's just one God among many gods, the world's gods. Yes, they have their gods, we have our God. It's all about the same. Whatever you want to worship, that's fine. So many Christians today are just like this, worshiping God in the land. When you take this kind of way, you, you also you deny God's judgment on the world. Egypt in the Old Testament was judged by God. Today we know the world is under God's judgment. But if you stay in the world, if you've never had that clear separation from the world, you're denying that God is going to judge this world. And again, there's so many believers. Sorry to say, like the mainline denominations, this is exactly what they do. They're worshiping God in the land. They don't have that clear separation from the world system. So for sure, we don't want to be this type of Christian. Moses' response to this offer is very good. In verse 26, he says, It's not right for us to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before our eyes, will they not stone us? A lot of people, even when you're, so to speak, sacrificing in the land, they get offended by Christian worship. They don't like the fact that you're doing that. It's really so. Again, just an exact picture of our experience. Isn't that what we're seeing today, saints? This kind of response to any kind of worship, genuine worship of the Lord. But in verse 27, Moses says this, We will go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So here again we see, to follow Christ, we have to take that three days journey. Saints, we have to have that clear and definite separation from the world, which we have in the death and the resurrection of Christ. That three days journey. So important for us to have that kind of a definite separation. So the next compromise that Pharaoh offers is very interesting. After Moses says that in, in verse 28 of Exodus chapter 8, Pharaoh says this, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. You know what this is? This is saying, 
don't be an extreme Christian. Don't, don't go too far. Don't be a narrow Christian. Don't be that type of Christian. Don't, don't believe everything that's in the Bible. Don't go too far away from the world. And again, so many Christians are in just this kind of condition. Yes, they're really saved. And yes, to some extent, they've left the world. But they've never gone that far away. And when you look around in Christianity today, don't you see so many Christians are just like this? Really something. Yes, to some extent, you could say they've left the world, but they're not very far away. They haven't had that very definite, clear separation that you really need in order to follow Christ in a genuine way. Now here I do want to read some comments that uh, uh, Schofield and uh, McIntosh make about this case. Very, very worthwhile, I think. McIntosh, in his Notes on the Pentateuch, says this, and I, I, I would say I recommend this highly. It's a very, very good study of the books of Moses. He says this, If Pharaoh could not keep the Israelites in Egypt, he would at least seek to keep them near it. Again, he says, don't go far away. So that he might act upon them by its varied influences. In this way, they might be brought back again and the testimony more effectively quashed than if they had never left Egypt at all. Now, now listen to what he says here. There is always much more serious damage done to the cause of Christ by persons seeming to give up the world and returning to it again than if they had remained entirely out of it. Really so. You know, in the, in the news recently, there have been some stories of some high-profile believers who had some profession of Christ and they wrote books about Christ and uh, or maybe they're these musicians, whatever, and, and, and it seems like they're following Christ. And then eventually they just give up the faith entirely and they turn back to the world. And I think many believers get discouraged by that. Do you know who these believers are? These are ones who never went very far away. They never went very far away. Yes, they had some separation of the world, but they never had that clear indefinite separation of that three days journey. Very, very striking example of what uh, McIntosh is talking about here and what the Bible shows us in Exodus chapter 8 concerning Pharaoh's bargaining. And this exactly matches uh, Peter's word in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to return from the holy commandment delivered unto them. It has happened unto, the, unto them according to the true proverb, the dog has returned to its own vomit and the sow that was washed to wallowing in the mire. It's really so, just exactly what some of these ones who have forsaken the way of Christ have, have done. They just returned to wallowing in the mire, so to speak. And Schofield's comment here uh, is also very good. This is in his note in the 1917 Schofield Study Bible on Exodus chapter 8, verse 25. He says this, The compromises proposed by Pharaoh are those urged upon Christians today. It's really so. The first says, in effect, Be a Christian, if you will, but not a narrow one. Stay in Egypt. Invariably, it ends in world conformity, world pleasing, and seeking the world's money for God. Wow, very, very sober word there from Mr. Schofield, but exactly uh, points out what Pharaoh is trying to do here in his bargaining with the believers. I would say it again, saints, we have to take that three days journey that really definitely separates us from Satan and from the world system the journey of death and resurrection, so we walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Praise the Lord for that. Let me add here another word from Macintosh. These are on his, this is uh, from his notes on Exodus chapter 7 to 11. 
it is deeply important to see that Satan's design in all these objections was to hinder that testimony to the name of the God of Israel, which could only be rendered by a three days journey into the wilderness. Really so. This was, in good truth, going very far away. It was much farther than Pharaoh could form any idea of, or that he could follow them. And oh, how happy it would be if all who professed to set out from Egypt would really, in the spirit of their minds and in the tone of their character, go thus far away from it. Really so, really so. To have that clear separation from Satan's world system is much, much more blessed than any kind of compromise we could ever accept uh, that Satan offers us. So the next stage of the bargaining is in Exodus chapter 10. And this is after the Lord sends the plague of locusts. And it's just about all that the Egyptians can stand. So Pharaoh's counselors say, we got to let this guy go. So Pharaoh calls Moses and he says in Exodus chapter 10, verse 8, So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses says, basically, everybody's going to go. Then here's the offer Pharaoh makes in verse uh, 10. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. In other words, now Pharaoh is very concerned about the Israelites. He's very concerned about the little ones. He doesn't want to see them suffer, right? That's, that's what you see according to the picture here. He goes on, Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord. for That is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So in other words, he was okay with letting the parents go, the men, but not the children, because he was so deeply concerned about the welfare of the children, right? Again, this exactly pictures the case of so many Christians today. Yes, the parents are serving the Lord. They're they're following Christ, but their children remain in Egypt. They don't want their children to have to pay the price to follow Christ, because they know it's not an easy life. Following Christ is not easy. So they want to shelter them from that. They themselves follow the Lord, but they don't really encourage their children to follow the Lord that much. Maybe a little bit, but not that much. And that's a big reason why so many children, as soon as they've grown up, maybe they go off to college or maybe after that, so many of them fall away from the Lord because their parents never really helped their children to come out of the land of Egypt with them. Very serious matter. And of course, it's not easy. I'm sure it's not easy for those Christians who are parents, to really take that kind of a stand. But that is the way to really follow Christ. As Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Joshua 24, 15. What a firm stand he had. Here's what McIntosh says about this stage of the bargaining. Parents in the wilderness and their children in Egypt. Terrible anomaly. This would only have been half a deliverance, at once useless to Israel and dishonoring to Israel's God. Jehovah could have no part with Pharaoh. Either he should have all or nothing. This is a weighty principle for Christian parents. May we lay it deeply to heart. It is our happy privilege to count on God for our children and to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We should not be satisfied with any other portion for, quote, our little ones, than that which we ourselves enjoy. Really so. May the Lord grant Christian parents the grace to really take a firm stand that their whole house is going to serve the Lord. You would see much stronger Christian families, much stronger churches today, and a much stronger testimony to the gospel all across the nation if Christian parents really took that kind of a stand. But again, the Lord foresaw 
what was going to happen. And that's why we have this picture of Pharaoh's bargaining concerning our children here in the book of Exodus. And the final offer that Pharaoh makes is in Exodus chapter 10, verse 24. He calls Moses and says, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and herds be kept back. Your little ones also go with you. In other words, now everybody can go. Even your whole family can go. But you still have to have your living here in the world. You still have to make your living according to the world's principles. This is what the Lord said and warned us about. You cannot serve God and mammon. If we take this compromise, eventually we will find out we are still serving the world. We're not really serving the Lord. So Moses was very firm about this also. He says, no, we're not going to leave a single hoof behind. We're not going to give you anything. Everything has to go. That was his final response. And of course, not long after this, you had the Passover, the slaying of the firstborn of Egypt, and then the Egyptians themselves thrust Israel out of the land of Egypt. Saints, we need that kind of separation. We have to be careful never to accept any of Satan's compromises because he's so subtle, so wise in how he deals with us. We have to be so firm. Once again, I would say we need that three days journey, that clear separation provided by the death and resurrection of Christ so we forsake the world entirely and go out into the wilderness so we can stand with the Lord for his kingdom and for the raising up of his testimony on the earth. Praise the Lord for that. May the Lord grant us the grace and the wisdom how to take such a clear stand for him in these days. It's not easy. The world is so strong. We really need the Lord's grace to make that kind of a stand. But we do trust, we do pray that he would make it so among so many of his people. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.